This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Grasso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network. And my guest today is Christian Conti, PhD. Christian, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. So before we get started, would like to read your bio briefly, and uh, I'm excited to dive in and see where this conversation goes. So Christian Conti, PhD, is a licensed professional counselor, a certified domestic violence counselor, and a certified level five anger management specialist. Level five is the highest level possible. Dr. Conti is one of a handful of people in the world who have reached it. He was the uh, resident therapist on VH1's Family Therapy, co-host of USA Network's The Secret Life of Kids, and co-host of Spike TV's Coaching Bad with football Fall of Hamer, uh, Ray Lewis. I think I just said Fall of Hamer. <laughs> I meant <laughs> Hall of Famer, Ray Lewis. And, and I don't edit on this show, so I'm leaving. Nice. Because <laughs> curr- we're all human and we all mess up. That's that's the whole point of the show. Thank you for saying that. Um, he currently applies his yield theory in uh, maximum security prisons throughout Pennsylvania. His new book, Walking Through Anger, A New Design for Confronting Conflict in an Emotional World, Emotional Charged World, was recently released by Sounds True. They published my second book, and I absolutely love Sounds True. Um, for more, please check out Christian at www.drchristianconti, that's C-O-N as in uh, Nancy, T as in Tom, E.com. And if you're checking this out on the Be Here Now Network, simply scroll down. The link will be right there for you, as will the link to uh, Christian's book. Christian, thanks again for your time. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate every single time um, for people to have an interest in the work that I'm doing. And I'm I'm just genuinely grateful about that. Yeah. And I, and I sense that about you. And that's why I'm really excited to have you on the show. Um, you know, something that struck me, I think I first became familiar with you. Um, I did see you on VH1's uh, Family Therapy. Um, you know, we were talking briefly before we hit record and um, my friend uh, Bam Margera was on there. And um, I remember, you know, you're you're a, a big dude. Like you're someone that typically if I saw you or someone saw you, you're like, I don't want to mess with that guy, which <laughs> I get too. like, I'm not as buff as you are, but I'm a bigger guy. I'm covered head to toe in tattoos, like, you know, pretty you know, I guess uh, I don't want to say threatening, but you know, I I go uh, I go running. I live in a kind of nice rural area in Connecticut, and the running joke with my fiance and I, when I go running because I've cut off uh, sleeves, and uh, when when I'm out there, she says, "Don't run too aggressively," um, you know, because that's <laughs> how I look. Yet I'm like the sweetest teddy bear. Um, I wasn't <laughs> always that way, but I, I, that's part of what you know attracted me to you, and and right away seeing you on that show, I'm like, wow, like this big, you know, like typically buff macho looking guy is like this really soft, like gentle, like compassionate human being. So, you know, I would love to start by uh, going back. And if, you know, you can talk about and take this wherever you'd like your, a bit of your backstory, um, what, wherever you'd like childhood, teenage, whatever, but you know, some of your life experiences, defining moments that led you to the path you're on today and the work that you do today. Yeah. I think that's such a great question. It's an in-depth question yeah. because I have a very 
diverse career. I do many different things. Right. And I'm really passionate about helping people understand that one thing led to the next in the story of everyone's life. Yeah. Um, so same is true with me. You know, it's funny because I am. I'm six feet, 250, covered in tattoos. Uh, and it's it's just funny. Yeah, I'm bald with a beard. So I look like everybody else at a biker bar. Right. Uh, and, yeah. and I think typically when people see me, they don't put the two and two together for what I do. But listen, they, they found a wolf in Yellowstone National Park mm. that was like the most dominant wolf they had ever encountered. I mean, this thing never lost a fight. Yeah. And as they're observing this wolf, they noticed something that kind of just really struck some of the biologists. And that was that anybody out there who has a tough dog, if you have a, a kind of tougher dog, they don't want to give you their belly. Mm-hmm. Right. But now my, my dogs will give you their belly cause they're, they're really loving and kind, but I'm just saying like, so sometimes you have people, they just, they don't want to give you that belly. But with this, this wolf, as powerful and strong as it was, it would not only give up its belly so that its own cubs could feel like they were winning, but they noticed what they noticed next blew their minds. He would do the same thing for neighboring cubs, cubs that weren't even his own. Wow. And so they dubbed him the super wolf because here was this wolf who never lost a battle, was as strong as can be, but could allow himself to be, to lead with humility, to train not only his own family, but the, the families around him. Right. And they, and they dub him the super wolf and they call it a true alpha. When an, an alpha is, when someone's an alpha, they have nothing left to prove. It's not a matter of acting tough or trying to intimidate people. That all comes from ego. Right. But, and so I, I you know, I, I feel like I'm in a spot in my life. I don't have anything to prove to people. I'm here to help shine a, a message of peace. Um, and I, and I don't take it for granted. I mean, when I go into the prisons, I do a lot of work in maximum security prisons and it certainly helps, um, to be my size in, in that, uh, at least initially for people to drop, you know, I went in one time, Chris, to a prison and they took me to the toughest guy in the prison. Yeah. And this guy was like, he, he, this guy was so fierce that like people just were straight afraid of him. So I I sat down, I started talking to him and the guy looked at me and he goes, um, I can tell you know what you're doing. And I said, man, I appreciate that. But I just walked in the room. I was like, how, how, what can you tell? What did you pick up on? He said, I was dressed in jeans and a, a T-shirt and a hoodie. He goes, man, he said, you dress like shit. So you must know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> he said, all these people come in with their fancy suits and ties and they put on all their act. But you can tell they're not what they are. Um, so. I was just going to say, I love that because, you know, I, I speak at, uh, and I'm not tooting my own horn, but just to, to kind of uh, qualify with you, I am fortunate that I get invited to speak at a lot of like major spiritual conferences or science conferences or wellness, whatever. And I'm, you know, on stage or speaking next to New York Times bestselling people, music, celebrities. I mean, you know, I don't want to name names, but just really very well-known people that are dressed. And there I am in literally like my black band t-shirt, my shorts or jeans, same exact thing. I am who I am. And uh, I think a lot of the time in those crowds, it's like, you know, at first they're kind of taken aback, but once, you know, they, they hear a bit of what I have to say, um, they open up. But on the other hand, I go in weekly to a youth residential facility uh, where it's mental health and healing, anything from addiction to suicide attempts and self-harm, eating disorders, behavioral issues, and, you know, 13 to 18. But the minute I walk in to where, where I do those workshops, you know, similar, like covered in tattoos, like the piercings, I have their attention immediately. And I really am grateful for that because, you know, that's such a delicate age. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So and it sounds like you're doing great work. It sounds like you're impacting them in a powerful way. I try, man. I, I appreciate that. I've been doing it for about five years. And uh, that's something um, that always comes first for me. You know, I, I travel and do speak a lot and, and write, as I mentioned, and have some books out. But um, that is like my great passion is working with that age demographic because I personally wasn't that much older when I crossed that line and became a full-blown addict myself and have had suicide attempts and uh, you know have died I've been intubated because I couldn't breathe anymore and I mean literally it's a miracle that I'm alive today and having seen so many other people not be as lucky as me um, to the point where I've lost count um, and I, and I don't know necessarily still why I made it and they didn't. I mean, perhaps I do cause that's why I do what I do, but, uh, this show is not about me. It's about you. Um, so 
You know, but that's powerful, and I appreciate you sharing that. I mean, that's a powerful aspect, and your your energy lights up as you talk about it, so you can tell it really uh, moves you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it does. Like I, I'm doing one tomorrow, and I just yes, I get very excited about it. I I do say it's equal parts heart uh, warming and heartbreaking because you know the the stories are are just so difficult. They're always difficult at any age, but that particular demographic to see that 14 year old. Uh, just coming in from a legit suicide attempt, not, I'm not talking about like a cry for help, but a real suicide attempt. Um, that's, that's difficult. Um, but I know, you know, all about that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I, I too have also done work in, uh, facilities for the criminally insane. Talk about feeling intimidated, you know, like literally, uh, the criminally insane. And so, I mean, that's just what we do, right? Like our, we follow our calling and our passion and so in your case, I know you said like it was a number of things that led you to that. Uh, but, you know, can, can you name some of them or, or what your life was like as you were you were growing up? You know, what struggles you faced? Um, yeah, you know, I think there were two two moments that are um, when I was writing this book that I looked at as defining as defining moments. Yeah. And when I was really reflecting and one um my uh, my dad was an earth scientist. And so when I was a teenager, I was kind of like, uh, you know, a haughty teenager. And I said to my dad one time, uh, what do you like about studying like rocks, you know, with geology and stuff like that? And he said, well, if you're only going to live on one planet your entire life, don't you think you ought to get to know that planet? Mm. And I was like, oh, that's a that's a great answer. Sure is. And, uh you know, and then later in in school, when I when I was in at uh, in college and I was a little lost and didn't really know what to do, I thought about my dad's answer, and I thought, you know, I took it a little bit a different direction. I thought I'm only ever going to live with me my entire life, so don't I think I ought to get to know myself? So I, I kind of that that's what led me into psychology. Yeah. And then there was a moment that occurred like right before I went into high school um, with my mom. So my mom's a real strict disciplinarian. Um, she, you know, she practiced her message. She, she would give kids homework. She was a ninth grade English teacher and she would give kids homework every single night, but she would have it all turned back in the next day. And she did that every single day. Um, so she was kind of teacher that kids were afraid of and didn't like when they had, but then they were really grateful they had yeah. after they, after they were done. But anyway, when I'm getting ready to go into this high school, um, it was kind of a uh, tougher area and there were lots of, uh, fights. I mean, think about the 1980s. It, yeah. It's, if you watch any eighties movies, that's what happened. Kids yep. circled up and fought. Yeah. So anyway, before I get to the, the school, my mom said, uh, I need you to understand something. I better never find out that you ever watched a fight. If you see people fighting, you step in, you break it up. Wow. Um, and that was powerful for me because from that moment to this, I'm the type of person who the moment something happens, I'm the, I will step right into it. I will step toward conflict, not away from it. Um, but I've spent a career, um, you know, more than 20,000 plus hours of clinical counseling experience, 21 years. I've spent a career where I, I I confront conflict head on, but I do it in a way that avoids or, or circumvents people's fight or flight responses. So it's not about just charging in aggressively or using size or any of that kind of stuff. It's about connecting with people and trying to make a genuine change. I, but yeah, those two moments are huge for me, learning about myself and then uh, stepping toward conflict, not away from it. I love that because I'll be honest, if I had you as some kind of a counselor and you just like, you know, puffed up on me and said, be better, you know, do your shit, whatever. I'd be like, OK, yeah, uh, but I appreciate <laughs> that that's not the approach you take. And, and so in in your book, Walking Through Anger, um, I know you talk about uh, this process that you've developed called yield th uh, theory. Um, now, is that kind of what you were referencing uh, a moment ago? Yes. So that's that's what this and this and what I'm excited about with walking through anger, what I was grateful to be able to share with the world. I, I developed this theory back in 1998 um, called yield theory. I've been refining it for the 20, you know, one years now. And it is it's about it's a way to meet people where they are circumvent their fight or flight response and speak in ways that are actually heard. Mm. Um, it, well, here's my original metaphor. So let's say a car is driving down the road, they're going the wrong way and you want to stop them. You can jump in your car and you can 
smashing into them head on and you'll stop them technically you know you'll stop them but likely one or both of you is going to get hurt right. now let's take that analogy and, or metaphor and let's just think of it this way let's say someone's driving down the wrong way so you merge with them you yield to them and then you're driving along beside them and since this is just a hypothetical right. stick with me gotcha. they, they realize you're, you're going in the same direction so save gas you jump in their car so now you're riding in their passenger seat and you're seeing things out of the windshield they're seeing things out of uh-huh. and then finally over time they trust you enough like it's a long trip they get tired so they let you drive and that's when you can help steer them down a different path mm. that that was the original metaphor for yield theory of that. of connecting with people that's really what it's about um yeah so- I, yeah, I was going to say, um, that's absolutely beautiful. Um, I love that. Um, I always try to look through the lens of others when, uh, not just when I'm working with them, but with people in general, when I'm conversing, um, you know, so that's shorter term, not actual like depth work, which you do. Um, but so how did that process continue to, uh, develop from there? Well, so I did, I started out by doing in the nineties, I would do this in-home counseling where I would go in and work one-on-one with kids, but I would see all these different homes and regardless of money, regardless of where people were, people had issues. So I I have this tagline I've been saying for 21 years, that is there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who have issues and dead people. Ah. (laughs) If you're not dead, you have issues. So do I, we all do. That's life. Yes. Um, but that has really radically changed the way I uh, participate in life. Like I, my first thought when people do something is there's something that led to that. Explaining behavior does not excuse it. It doesn't make it okay for, you know, people to be, commit acts of violence on others, but explaining it does help us understand. Yes. Um, and so that's what I kind of seek to do. And in walking through anger, I teach people how to connect with people in the height of conflict and go straight through it. Mm. So think about it this way in, um, if we really want change, like I reference this in the book, but if you, if, if in the Christian tradition in a church, they will have in the center or the altar, uh, you know, this Christ consciousness that people are seeking. Right. And on the outside of the churches, oftentimes you'll see gargoyles mm. and these gargoyles were intended as a, a symbolic gesture to say, if what I want is on the inside and that is, um, that is so powerful to me that I have to pass through this challenge to get to where to get to this consciousness that I want to get to, right. and that symbolism is across um, different uh, religions and spiritual beliefs. In in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, you know, when you die, you're faced with your worst fears of beautiful gods and the bardos, right? Yes, exactly. And if you choose this path, it's an easy path. You're reborn in a in a lower form, but if you face those fears, you recognize they're a projection, and you're able to go through them. Yeah, I love uh, that metaphor. I love how you explained that, uh, especially at the church. Um, I actually just uh, a week ago yesterday, um, I've been having, you know, these back issues I mentioned to you before we got on the show and um, and I had a broken toe. So anyways, it's left me at a point where I have not been able to run, which is very important uh, to me and my integral health and well-being or work out for we're going on six months now um so the one thing i've tried to do is take that time to get the areas tattooed that i didn't because i'm a runner and i didn't want to take time off so like my feet and uh i did have my knees done but um i got the back of my knees which that sucks i don't know if you have yours but not the back of my knees yeah they're brutal uh front of the knees were not fun back of the knees brutal but anyways i mentioned that because on my right knee, uh, the tattoo I got, and a lot of people would, I haven't actually caught flack for it, but would look at it and probably think it's rather blasphemous. But, um, you know, to me, recognizing both the shadow and the light is uh, mutually important. I think they are both uh, incredible teachers. I think they're both to be honored. I'm a big fan of Young's work and his shadow work uh, yeah, of but- reowning and reintegrating our shadow material. Um, so anyways, this tattoo I got is a picture of Jesus um, holding a baby Baphomet 
you know, that that unfortunately was taken out of context and used as a satanic symbol. Um, you know, he has a little pentagram on his forehead, but it it's a really endearing like picture of Christ just holding this baby Baphomet, looking down with like complete care and compassion. And underneath that in uh, Sanskrit, the word sub ek, which uh, Ram Das, who's my teacher, his guru was Maharaji. He used to say that all the time, sub ek, which means all one, all is one. And so for me, that kind of, you know, I'm just piggybacking on your reference, but that, you know, you need to go in, you need to embrace all of it. Um, one of my favorite things is the only way out is through. So you have to walk into it and face it. And that's what personally kept me going back to relapses time and again, even after years of sobriety, I was only scratching the surface. I wasn't going deep and in doing that difficult and uncomfortable work. Yeah. And, and you had to face that conflict head on. Yes. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's ultimately that is our quest is yeah. where we can't, um, you know, it's one of the things as a parent, you think, well, well, I want to give my child this experience, this life experience. And we want that so badly, um, to help save them from some of the pain we might've experienced. But yeah. in the, at the end of the day, like our, you, as a parent, your job is to help your children prepare them for the challenges that they'll face, but they will ultimately have to walk through their own, their own, you know, thresholds right. themselves. Yeah. So well said. And, and like my mom, uh, I feel bad cause I know she still holds so much guilt and blames herself for my addiction experience and whatnot. And, you know, of course that may have had a role. Um, you know, I had the genetic predisposition. Um, but you know, there's a time where you have to make a decision. You're an adult and no matter what life circumstances you've endured, we always have the opportunity to choose differently every moment. Um, some of us unfortunately don't get introduced to that or are just so jaded that we are completely shut off. But um, I think that's where you and I might be, you know, have one of many things in common is that uh, it's possible for everyone to make change and to better themselves and to heal those wounds and to look at them face on. And and that's why I do trauma-based therapy. For me, that's what it took. Um, Therapy is grateful, but EMDR and ART therapy is what really brought me into those places that, uh, like I said, were uncomfortable, but necessary to uh, not avoid, uh, or, you know, be averse to anymore. So, uh, in your own life, how do you, how do you practice that, um, yourself, you know, do you use your, your own yield theory? I mean, I'm assuming you do, but are there other methods that have helped you along the way that you've worked with? Well, I think that, um, probably one of the things that distinguishes, you know, I've seven, there are three core actions, the yield theory and fundamental components to it. And I think one of the things that distinguishes, um, people who are actually practicing yield theory is the non-attachment, which is one of the fundamental components. Yes. And that is a practice that, you know, we, we, we understand we are not our things, right. Or we're not our material goods. But the reality is we're also not our thoughts. We're not we're not a thought that we have. Right. I see so many people who will acknowledge or play, pay lip service to saying that there's still more to learn as long as they're alive. Mm-hmm. But then the moment someone disagrees with them, they get upset. And I think, <laughs> well, if you have more to learn, then how are you upset? This person has a different perspective. Right. And it's perfectly OK. They are where they are. You are where you are. Um, so I, I've been spending a lifetime practicing non-attachment. So I think that it's a little easier um, once you really, really, uh, you know, hit the tipping point with understanding what that really means. Yeah. Um, Please go right ahead. Well, I, well, I was going to say the other aspect that I think I've found is a really a sum of the essence of what I do and how I live is I, just the way I say there are two kinds of people. I say there are two worlds we live in. One of them I call the cartoon world, which is our world of shoulds. You know, people should believe what I believe, think how I think, feel how <laughs> right. And then there's the real world, how people actually are. Right. And unfortunately, we spend a lot of time in our cartoon worlds thinking, you know, this is how the world should be. This is what they should have said. This is what they should have done when they didn't. And so that's just fantasy. And when we start to align our expectations with reality and accept the reality that's in front of us, we're more prepared to handle it accurately. Right. Um, So, I, you know, I practice these things. Um, 
I, I've developed a philosophy. I spent many years um, making really super esoteric concepts super easy for people. Yeah. And I, I love doing that. The challenge with that that I found through the years are our egos want to rush in and say we already know stuff. So right. we're like, oh, 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 I understand. I already know that. I already know that. Yeah. You know, there was a there was a professor who had all these answers and he goes to the Zen master and he's like, man, I, I was popping us this question, that question, this question. So Zen master's pouring him a cup of tea and he says, uh, he just keeps asking these questions. So the tea starts to flow over. Uh, yep. <laughs> and the guy goes, you know, stop, stop. And he said, well, as long as your mind is like this cup, you know, yes. it's overfilled. I so, love that. Yeah. Like you, I've heard that story hundreds of times, told that story hundreds of times. A few years ago, I was in my office or my library, and I was – look, I'm a speaker, so I, I tell a lot of Zen tales when I speak. Yeah. And uh, I was going through my books, and I came across that story, and I I was just, just about to flip the page saying – I've told this one hundreds of times. I've listened to it hundred times, read it hundred times. I'm just going to flip over it, and in that instance, mm. I understood the message deeper. Mm. I allowed my belief that I knew the story. My cup was full, filled in that moment. Right. And so I, so I made a blank, and I said, I'm going to read this as though every syllable of every word I've never heard before. Mm. And then I truly, I, I feel like I understood it on a level that was significantly deeper than I had. For the, you know, and that's a story I knew as a kid. So probably 30, 30 some years. And, and it's it's powerful to empty our cups. We're really convinced that we have the answers. We're really convinced that our way of thinking is the right way. Right. And I think my experience has taught me that there are lots of different paths. I couldn't agree more. And uh, that's the approach I take in life is, um, and there's nothing wrong with identifying as this or that, but um, I don't. I, I, learn and read from all of the great wisdom traditions, particularly the mystical texts. Um, I love reading psychologists, um, neuroscientists, physicists. Um, you know, life is just this incredible school uh, to constantly be learning from. Um, but I, I wanted to quickly just talk about that non-attachment because um, that is something I too have practiced for many years. I mean, that's the root teaching in Buddhism is, you know, the cause of suffering uh, in life is our attachments and aversions to things and you know nothing is permanent everything is subject to change um i love how Thich Nhat han i'm guessing you're familiar with him since you study zen yes. um you know he says that thanks to impermanence everything is possible so it's kind of a beautiful way of flipping you know that oh you know everyone's gonna die this or that and i appreciate his perspective but you know, this is the first show um, I've done since uh, Ram Das. This is on his network, and um, he's my root teacher, passed away um, uh, on December 22nd. I'm and sorry. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I, 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 You know, the interesting thing was, um, so I, I learned of his passing, and I'm connected with, you know, a lot of the satsang, um, and I see a lot of social media posts that are, celebrating his transition and um I, you know i knew that he was not well and i had a feeling he would probably transition this year and i'd been preparing myself and um you know it just showed me how attached i i was to that physical form um uh, you know easier said than done sometimes and uh so i'm looking at these other people and i'm like wow i'm i'm really glad that if that's how they're really experiencing that loss, then um, wonderful. Um, but, you know, for two days, I was in a fog. It really, like this hit me so hard. Um, I, I thought I was prepared and I wasn't. And it showed me just how attached I was to, to that physical form and the regret that I did not get to see him recently, um, you know, before he moved on. And it, it just... Uh, you know, after a few days, though, the perspective came in when I talked to a dear friend of his. And um, while I knew he was not well, I did not know the extent of suffering and pain that he actually was in. So when I heard that, um, that helped me make, you know, more peace with that, because uh, knowing that he had moved on from that pain and suffering, um, it was it was needed. So, um, but yeah, non-attachment, a huge one. And I think sometimes for people might feel... 
if it's a, if it's a listener's first introduction to the concept of non-attachment, I can see a person feeling intimidated of thinking, well, if I'm going to practice this, that means I have to not even be upset if right. a loved one dies, and that's not, you know, that's the, uh, there's a, a deep metaphysical yes to that answer, but then there's also a no. That's not what it's always about either. Right. It's being able to separate yourself even from your ego and not be attached to your ego. Right. Because so much conflict. And, and you know, my book, This Walking Through Anger, is centered on conflict and anger. And there are a lot of angry people out there. Yes. Um, and that anger is not comfortable to live with. Right. And, you know, I do a radio show, and I was talking on my radio show last night about this idea that um, if anger, and in Buddhism, there's a teaching that it's one of uh, the hate is a poison it's a right. poison you know greed hate and delusion are what are known as the three poisons and yeah. there are if you think about it if i drank poison and i'm suffering from that and i said hey chris i'm dying in terrible pain because i just drank this poison here you try it right you're gonna be like no you're dying in terrible pain from it but the same is true when you're suffering with this hatred if you feel like oh i'm so at peace as long as everyone believes exactly what i believe i'm right. so at peace as long as everyone's in agreement that my perspective is a definitive perspective but if you can genuinely um recognize that if you have anger and hatred and you're suffering with that then rallying others to hate what you hate is injecting them infusing them with poison yeah and and why do that to others yeah so i say something and this is important i i think I, I told us I was speaking to a group of college kids uh, years ago, and I, it was an outdoor event, and there and I was I, I'm a kind of a, I've always been a creative therapist, so I kind of look around me for objects and things, and I saw a bucket sitting there, and I said, so if I gave each and every one of you a bucket, what would you put in it? And I go around, and a couple of the kids said one kid said cell phone, another kid said food. So I look at the kid with the, you know, the cell phone. I said, okay, so you would have a cell phone in your bucket, right? And you would have food in your bucket, right? Okay. So pretty obvious point, right? And they're like, yeah, obvious point. What's, what sense does this make? Well, the same is true with your mind. Whatever you put in your mind will be in your mind. Right. So if you put anger and, and hatred in your mind, that's what's in your mind. That's what you're filling your head with. Right. And the same is true with the world. We're all creating the content of the universe today, right now, with everything we say and do. And even though we have a tendency to minimize the harm we cause and maximize the harm others cause, the reality is that when we rally others to hate and be as angry as we are, that's what we're contributing to the content of the universe. Yeah, so beautifully said. And I mean, it couldn't be more apropos for where we are. Uh, I mean, it's been like this for some time, but obviously... Uh, and not to get too political, but, you know, the past couple of years and where we're at specifically today, even though this show will be uh, won't be airing for a little while. But, you know, here we are in this conflict with um, Iran and even prior to that conflict within our own country and families divided and friends divided over these um, beliefs and non-beliefs. And, um, you know, in, in my own family, my fiance's uh Mother and and sister are supporters of the president. I personally am not, and um, but I can respect to each their own. Um, and we've just made it a rule like we don't talk politics, and you know we love one another, and we can love one another, and and leave it at that. Um, but you know, unfortunately, most people can't. And I'm not saying that um, you know you shouldn't have an opinion, and if you feel strongly about something. Um, you know, speaking up about it, but I, I also agree with you about rallying towards hatred. I, I don't uh, see any value whatsoever, of course, in that. I dislike uh, what our current president stands for. I don't agree with his morals and his ethics and, and whatnot, but, um, you know, he is who he is, and I'm not going to write someone off just because they support him. Um, I would rather have a dialogue. Help me understand what it is about him, and, and let's talk instead of of you put up your wall, I put up mine. I, I don't want to approach life like that. And not, and that's just one example. I mean, it could be anything. But all of that said, with anger being one of you know, your your big specialties and this country being inundated by it, you know, if you've watched the news in the last few days, you, you're seeing chance of death to America. Like, um, you know, it's it's a very visceral time. I mean, I know Gandhi says, be the change you wish to see in the world. And we start within ourselves first. 
but on a collective level, what do you, what can we do? What, in your, in your eyes, in your view, in your experience, um, how can we, you know, as, as people start to shift this away from the, the trajectory that we are on? Well, so I, I think that, you know, you talk about embracing the shadow yeah. and it might even be embracing the shadow to say to your family members, let's have a discussion because there's part of you that says, yes, I want to have a discussion. Yep. There's another part that says, no, we laid down rules, say we're not going to have a discussion. <laughs> so, the, you know, kind of there's a way to, to communicate with someone who disagrees with your belief and realize, guess what? Maybe they genuinely have, maybe they're on a more effective path. Sure. And, and it's only our egos to convince us we're right. right. So here's how I, here's how I years ago. Um, so my wife and daughter and I identify as Zen Buddhists. It's something that we practice daily yeah. and that's how we've raised our daughter. So, um, it, it's something that works for us. Um, but you know, I, obviously other people have different paths and yeah. we honor and respect those. One day when our, um, daughter was, uh, young, someone handed her a pamphlet on religion and and so she was uh, f- five years old and so she comes home from school and hands me this pamphlet and the pamphlet is about a different faith and it says this is the truth mm. so she says daddy this is the truth right because it says this is the truth so i took her up to her playroom and i had uh, her lie on her stomach now she was five years old at the time i had her lie on her stomach on the floor close her eyes i put a big box in front of her mm-hmm. and i put different objects around the box and i had her scooch up so she could only see one side of the box and when she opened her eyes and i said so i, I opened her eyes and i said what do you see and i had a little my little pony character there uh-huh. she said my little pony i said okay wonderful is it true that there's a my little pony right there yes is that truth yes cool is it true there's a my little pony on every side of the box again she's only five so she's like yes yes i said okay great so i had her scooch over without getting up and i slid her across the floor and i just see two sides of the box and on the second side i had a little book set up and she's like oh it's a book i said that's okay just because there's a book here does it make it any less true that there's a pony on the other side no that's still truth right to people who see that side that is definitely truth right now i said to her is it true that there's a pony and a book on the other two sides? Five years old, my little girl says to me, now, daddy, I don't know. I said, that's it. That's it. Yeah. To the people who follow that way, that very well may be truth, seeing one side of the box, but that doesn't necessarily say that that tells the story for the entire box. Right. Or that there even is a box. Right. In life, we all, if we just look at it from a physical perspective, let's say that box is the size of a building. If we're standing in front of it, we can only see one, maybe two sides of that box. Yes. And we are, and let's take it a step further. Let's imagine that uh, the, each side of the box has an ever-changing picture. Mm-hmm. And we don't know what that picture is. And the only way for us to know what's going on the other side of the box is to have people tell us what's going on. Right. Because if we go to that side, now we miss the new pictures that are coming up on this side. And this approach, if this makes sense, this is about leading with humility and genuine curiosity, because it's our ego that says, well, I'm open to people, but I really believe this group is wrong. Sure. Um, Wait a minute. If we're really setting our ego aside and recognizing with humble curiosity, then we're saying, wait a minute, maybe there's something on the other side that they're seeing that I'm simply not seeing. Maybe the fault is in my perception or perspective, not in what's going on with them. Right. And this is a very powerful journey to be able to lead in this way. It doesn't mean you can't believe things. It doesn't mean you can't have convictions. Right. It's saying, always have that sense of, there is a possibility I'm inaccurate on this and that there's a different, uh, more expansive perspective that I just don't see. Yep. And so we take the complete uh, same approach on that. Um, I did want to clarify with my f- uh, family-in-law, the only reason that rule was made was because uh, certain people couldn't have that conversation in without getting uh, overly upset. Um, sure, sure. When I do my workshops or I write books or I give talks, uh, one of the first things I make very clear is that there is no right or wrong answers in anything. Um, I do not have all the answers. All I can share with you is based on my life experience, what's worked for me. I hope that it helps you know you avoid many of the pitfalls that I have been down, um, but it's just my experience. Um, what I love about 
Ramdas is, you know, he said, speaking at least to the spiritual path, uh, he says it's uh, not true that there's one path for all individuals. It's a highly uh, individualized process and you need to find your own way. Um, so, you know, while I don't identify specifically as anything, I have a deep reverence, I think, as I already mentioned, for all of these wisdom traditions. And I love the book Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, because that's how I try to approach life similar to your um, overflowed cup uh, story, which I've heard many times and thoroughly enjoy. Um, because when you think you know, and you know, for me, that's when I'm the farthest from knowing is when I think I know. Um, so I try to approach everything, every aspect of my life with curiosity and wonder and an open mind. And what can I learn from this person or this situation and looking at things like I love the building metaphor you said, and, um, a little different from that, but, um, I've studied a lot of Mahayana Buddhism and, um, you know, even in Zen, what I love about Thich Nhat Hanh is talking about interdependence and everything is, you know, based on something and it's all completely connected. So there's a point in my life where I started, well, I've been running, but I will be running and I'll look at a house as an example. And I don't see a house anymore. What I see is, um, wood and nails and, you know, paint and a door and a handle and, you know, all of these things where if you took them apart, is it still a house or is it the potential to be a house? So it's like, you know, all of these things need to come together to make something just like the atoms had to turn into molecules. It turned into cells and organisms, uh, you know, that we are, um, I don't know. I'm kind of nerding off on a tangent here, but uh, you mentioned Buddhism, so I'm pointing the finger at you because I love stuff like that. Um, but bringing that back to the relationship with anger and um, you know dealing with that in our daily lives, let's talk about since we we're mentioning family um, and relationships. What's advice? Um, and I know you did just kind of talk about that, but you know. So maybe if you either want to do uh, from a family perspective or an intimate relationship, um, what what are some some teachings or, or things that you think are conducive in that setting? Well, so the three core actions, I, I say all the time, it's easy to doubt other people. Yeah. We especially can we can we can be skeptics when it's somebody we disagree with. Boy, we can <laughs> we can rip their arguments apart. But how often are we skeptical of our own egos, our own ideas? Right. How often we look and say, wait a minute, maybe I'm absolutely out of line here. Right. It's not yeah. often. But anyway, I, I'm one of the I practice this a lot. And I, I was looking at myself saying, what do I really do? Like 20. I mean, I lost count after 20,000 hours. Yeah. I mean, think about that one on one sessions, clinical sessions, each session, like coming out, writing about it, learning from it. And it's been, a, you know, I've been doing this a long time. And, and so I sat down and said, what do I really do? Like I sit in a chair and talk to people, you know, I stand at a cell door and I talk to people like what actually happens. And I realize I do three things. I listen, I validate. I explore options. Mm -hmm. And these are the core components of what yield theory. These are the full core actions of yield theory. Listen, validate, explore options. Yeah. Now, when we think about that, um, the the empty your cup story and the quick uh, uh, ego to say, uh, like my ego, the first time I picked it up, not the first time, but when I was in my library a few years ago, I already know this. I already know this story. Mm -hmm. And what does it do? It's It's stopping us from experiencing the story. Right. And so when I, when I, when I looked at this, you know, I'm trying to break, what do I really do? Okay. I do these three things while well, I was speaking at this big mental health convention a few years ago at about 500 mental health specialists. And uh, a woman walked up to me and she said at the break, she said, that's your big theory. Three things. <laughs> I said, I said, yeah, but if you think about it, all Bruce Lee ever did was move block and hit and he did yeah. pretty well for himself. So sure uh, as if you were, it, it's, it's one thing to say, we know how to move and how to block and how to hit, but can you do it with the precision that Bruce Lee did it? Right. I, I, when I, when it comes to actions, what do you actually observably do? It's listen, validate and explore options. But of course those are driven by seven fundamental components. I intentionally didn't make this philosophy complicated because the goal is not to make it complex. So in the heat of a, you know, I specialize in working with people convicted of violent crimes. I, I, I work regularly with people who have done the most atrocious crimes in known to, to human beings. And how do I deal with people, especially if they're angry? Well, I'm doing these three things. I'm listening. I'm, I'm not listening with 
confirmation bias to hear what I want to hear. Yeah. I'm not listening to prove myself right. I'm listening because I genuinely want to hear about their side of the box. Right. And and when I validate, I'm not validating to check off a box and be like, okay, I validated. I'm saying no. As long as we're emotional, we're steeped in the emotional center of our brain, the limbic system. Yes. And when we validate, and what I call it, drain the limbic system. I say validate until you drain the limbic system. No validate till you think you validated. Validate until the other person feels validated. And then they'll be, and again, this is stuff in, in 2020, we can look at neurological scans and see that this is happening. Yeah. And then the person's ready to move to the higher level frontal cortex center, higher level thinking center of your brain, the frontal cortex. And, and now exploring options right. is they're much more prepared to explore those options. Yeah. And, it, you know, it starts and, and, and it really is, my whole philosophy is about meeting people where they are. Yep. And. So I have heard, I have heard for years, people say, yes, I know exactly that, or I do that all the time. And then they come and they talk about how they're struggling with people. And the very first thing I say is, tell me about what's going on with their perspective. Well, I'm not in this moment. I'm not talking about this. I, I do that for them. No, every time. Yeah. Meeting people where they are isn't about you. So there's a, there's a guy who gets to the top of a mountain, and he's on the top of the mountain, and there's a whole group of people that are on the bottom of the mountain, and they're lost. Yeah. And he's like, starts screaming at them, come up the way I came up. Why can't you come up? You should be up here next to me already. You should have already come up here. Yeah. And he screams and he screams as the fool on the mountain, but people can't ever hear him because he's on top of a mountain <laughs> we we can we I, you know i i, I tell a lot of stories zen tells i yeah. make up zen tells one of them I made up but I, it's it's we can laugh at the fool on the mountain but how often is somebody opposing something we think and our first move is to tell them how they should be thinking differently absolutely it, yeah and in that moment we are no different than the fool on the mountain so we have to have the discipline to leave where we are and go meet people where they are Yes. And that occurs daily. It can occur hourly. And so my feedback for people, you know, in this methodology and walking through anger, I think it's an easy read. I think it's a, like I said, I work really hard to make things easy for people to understand. Yeah. But it's it's obviously takes effort to apply this to your life. But the very first thing I would say is seek uh, to understand, as St. Uh, Francis of Assisi said, Seek first to understand, um, but put that into practice. And here's how our listeners right now could do that. Yeah. If there's, imagine anyone, everyone out there listening, imagine someone that you really dislike. And your first thought, well, well I can't understand this person. Yeah. Okay, well, put yourself behind that person's eyes because one thing led to another in, in that person's life, just as it is in your own. Absolutely. I mean, we it's it's uncanny as I listen to you, Christian, just how similar we are in the approaches we take. Um, I have such a deep respect and not just because I agree with you, but um, I, I truly do. Um, I, I, I love that. Um, I think what you were saying earlier about um, looking at ourselves um, and, you know, any of our outdated paradigms and beliefs for me. Uh, once a year, I read Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche's Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. And that book, aside from being like a, a classic, uh, every time I read it, it really, you know, it makes me feel like, you know, just a little, you can't see me right now, but just like this big, it's, you know, a tiny little person because it really... You know, I, I'll admit, like, I, I feel like I'm making progress and I'm helping others and this and that and it. And part of that is absolutely true. And I try to be as altruistic as possible. But if I'm being totally honest, it's not always altruistic. And I'm reminded of that when I read that book, you know, that is helpful. And, you know, that's what I love about what you're explaining about your book is keeping it basic same approach i take as humans we love to overcomplicate things and we really don't need to it's you know that simple zen mind beginner's mind empty cup and yes. uh i also lastly i just wanted to say that i appreciate that you throw some of the brain science in there because for me being in recovery I had to learn about the triune brain and, you know, the reptilian and the limbic uh, or uh, mammalian. Mammalian. Yeah, exactly. And, and understanding once I relapse, I'm now coming from that, that has taken over my neocortex. And, you know, even though, like I've said this before in the show, but during relapses, there have been times where literally 
I've been looking at lines on a table or a bottle uh, of alcohol and cried because I did not want to snort it or drink it. But I was back in that fight or flight reptilian brain that, you know, completely overpowers the neocortex um, in that moment until like you get it out of your system and and so on. So I appreciate that you also addressed that. And is there uh, anything else on that front, um, you know, in an accessible way for listeners that uh, you'd like to offer so they can understand how that process of anger is working within themselves? Yes, definitely. So, um, I, you know, I tell probably I've got probably like a hundred little Zen tales and types of things in my book. Um, you know, some I've heard, some I've just kind of flow through me, but, um, I also give a lot of hands-on real practical, like techniques and creative techniques because we all learn in different ways. So I spent a career trying to teach things in really creative ways. So here's a, here's a good one to understand with family. So let's say on a scale of one to 10, um, one is the baseline functioning of a normal brain, uh, uh, like a calm, normal brain. And then 10 would be like a high crisis. So imagine that we're in a room and a fire breaks out in that room. Our brains might shoot up to an eight or nine. Heck, if it's life threatening enough, maybe we even get up to a 10. But the moment we get out of that room and we're perfectly safe, our brain will come back down to a one. Right. Now, for some people, their brain, it vibes at like a four or five. Mm. So they're constantly feeling anxiety. They're feeling like they're in a crisis. And so here's a, a very powerful aspect of teaching to yield theory. And that is that our mind wants to match our body. So if you and I down three energy drinks really quickly, our heart's going to start to race. You know, we're going to start to feel the physiological symptoms of anxiety. Right. And our mind's going to race to make up a story to make sense out of it. So, uh, yeah, as busy people, we might say, oh, was I supposed to be over here? Did I miss a meeting? Did I forget about, you know, right. we start to create a story which then produces more cortisol, more adrenaline. And it, it, this panic can increase or the anxiety can increase. But I point out how to handle a, a person who I would call a crisis-prone individual if by recognizing that if a person's at a four or five, it's going to make sense why they're going to want to create a crisis to make sense of what, how they're feeling, the way they're feeling. And oftentimes that means pulling stuff up out of, out of nowhere. Mm. And the more attached you are to that, you might disagree. Maybe you're the person who's struggling with that, in which case – Mindfulness is super helpful, and I I talk about how to handle some of that in the book. And if you're talking to someone who's struggling with that, one of the best things you can do is implement this yield theory and listen, validate, explore options, not take it personally. And, you know, it's funny. So a lot of stuff I do in the prison system, first thing people will say is, oh, yes, I know. You don't take things personally. And I'm like, cool. Did you ever yell at an inmate? Oh, yeah, yesterday this guy, okay, well, then you took it personally. You don't, uh, yeah. you don't yell at anyone. You're not passionate about something unless you're taking it. Per- so don't, it's silly. Again, that's our egos. Our egos love to convince us that we're much farther ahead than we are. Oh, yeah. Um, but the, I'd say with your family members, if you, I mean, to the listeners with your family members, if you're encountering someone who's crisis prone individual, then be mindful to listen, validate and explore options with them and don't, and understand that it's not why they're trying to get this out. It's because it's like someone injecting you with crack cocaine or shoving a bunch of caffeine in your body all at once. Your body's going to feel super anxious and then your mind's going to want to make up a story to match. Yeah, absolutely. So wonderfully said. Um, you know, so Christian, you have the book out and, and I want to let listeners know, like, this is just like the tip of the iceberg. You know, I, I appreciate that you're giving helpful practices and tips. And that's what this show is all about. I want our listeners to walk away from this, uh, listening to this and be able to start implementing things. But you go so much more in depth um, because it's a whole book and rather than a, you know, short, not short, but hour long podcast. So um, what's uh, aside from this book, what is uh, next on your radar? What are you currently working on and doing? Well, um, so I'm real passionate about um, prison reform, and the state of Pennsylvania has officially adopted yield theory. So I'm training uh, the whole Department of Corrections, um, you know, 18,000 employees in yield theory. Um, I do that work throughout the country. Um, 
so I'll be going into uh, I go into prisons for like six months at a time. So I'll be in a new prison here shortly. Um, and then, uh, you know, I'm working on s- several different things. We're working on a documentary on the work I, I do in the prison system. Awesome. And um, I do radio. I do, I, you know, I do a YouTube channel for a free resource for people. I mean, I definitely like to tell people about that because oh, yeah. I've just been blown away at the to the people who reach out from all over the world. Um, I, I tell you what I did. I, I was just making videos because I, I kind of I love to teach. So I thought, OK, let me just share some things. And then one day I made this video on anxiety and a guy reached out to me who had been critically injured in a suicide bombing. Oh, wow. And He said this video really, really changed my life. He said, could you do one on PTSD? I said, absolutely. And so I did that. And then I just started to like do different. Now, now I'm really busy in terms of traveling. So I don't I'm not like the most consistent posting. But I'm starting to be this year i'm gonna try to you know stay consistent um at least put one up every uh one or two weeks now um and so you know i try to just make them real brief because i don't like to waste people's time and yeah. say here's a quick hit video um and so that's something to check out on youtube you just type in my name dr christian conte c-o-n-t-e and uh yeah that's i, that's, I like telling people about that and i also have a call-in radio show on uh, monday night so and i speak so yeah i'm all all over in terms of writing books i'm yeah still writing books and (laughs) it's non-stop you sound like me a man who wears many hats uh and is rather busy um so again i mean for listeners everything if i'm correct um all of the stuff you just mentioned can be found at your website, www.drchristianconti.com. Uh, I'm guessing that includes um, live appearances, uh, the YouTube channel, social medias, all sorts of uh, resources, um, the book, which we will have the book as well linked for people to purchase. Um, uh, but um, am I I'm correct in that assessment? Yeah, that's awesome. Perfect. So, you know, Christian, what I wanted to do and I like to wrap up with is giving my guests um, the the last minute or two um, to say anything that didn't come up in the conversation. Um, if you feel there's something you want to leave listeners with that we didn't address. Um, and if you don't, that's fine, too. But I, I always like to give my guests that opportunity. So um, a mic drop is an action that like somebody on stage can take after they make a strong point, right? They make a strong point, they drop the mic, like, bam, it's all over. Nothing else needs to be said. Right. I think in life, there's no such thing as a mic drop. Mm. I I don't think there's a final word on anything. I think there's, as long as we're alive, there's always more to say. There's more to learn, more to discover, more to create. Um, So no, we didn't talk about everything. And I appreciate you recognizing there's a whole whole lot more in the book than what we just got a chance. We didn't really talk a lot about the book, about the subjects, which was good because I actually love when people pick that up and read that. and I would love to say in life, there's no mic drop. You don't get to a point where, oh, I made that point. So that's it. No, there's more to ha- there's more to talk about. And as long as we continue to, you know, even in a discussion, like we, I, I think there's a big difference between debates and discussions. Mm. And as long as we have debates, it's about a winner and a loser. It's about who who drops the mic on who. But right. when you have a discussion, you say this is ongoing. It will all, and you look at somebody like from philosophy, G.W.F. Hegel. Yeah. And you think about what it is. You're creating you're creating a statement that's gonna naturally produce its opposite. And then when you, you kind of look at that thesis and antithesis, now you have a synthesis, a new thought, and that's the new thesis, the new statement. And on and on it goes, um, you know, as long as we'll be around. Yes. So yeah, I think there's more to say, but that's the beauty of of still being around. So thank you so much for taking time to interview me and have me on um i appreciate this it means a lot to me um uh, vice versa and you know i uh i definitely will have i know you're a, vi- a busy man but um i would love to have you back on so we can dive deeper into the book specifically i know you know like you said we definitely covered some of the ground but there is so much more to it so um you know we'll, we'll have to find a time where we can reconnect and uh really dive deeper into the book specifically but um you know christian i just want to say that i really bow to you for the work that you are doing uh for showing up with you know the care and compassion that you do um you know if if there were more uh use in this world it would certainly be a better place but um you know i really appreciate you i appreciate your kindness um i feel connected to you like from maybe the first second we started talking Uh, 
we got on. So, yeah, I'd be happy Thanks to come back on and let Bam know I said hello. I sure will. Absolutely. Next time I talk to him, done deal. Um, so, uh, again, everyone, the, Dr. Christian Conti, the name of the book, which is available everywhere. Uh, books are sold through the wonderful publishing uh, outfit, Sounds True, is Walking Through Anger, a new design for confronting conflict in an emotionally charged or in an emotional charged world. Um so can't recommend it enough grab it um do yourself a favor do the world a favor but don't just read it act on it put those actions into your life uh christian thank you again so much i love it thank you so much all right This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.